All right, we are back and speaking with David Talbot, the author of Devil Dog, the amazing true story of the man who saved America. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this particular aspect, but there was a little, I guess, almost comedic aside in in the book, David. You talked about how in the 20s, uh, Butler got involved in the enforcement of prohibition. His hometown uh, put him in charge, and uh, as Butler usually did, he didn't do things the way that uh, the, the powerful interest would have preferred. No, he always had a way of stepping on the, the toes of the rich and powerful. Yes, in desperation, the city of Philadelphia turns to Butler and says, uh, you know, we're being overrun by gangland violence. It's the Prohibition era. The Al Capone types have taken over cities. Uh, and so Smedley says, yes, he will. He'll take a leave uh, of absence from the Marines, and he becomes the top uh, police official in Philadelphia in the 1920s. And he begins to go after sort of the corner speakeasies and the or the street bootleggers, but then he realizes, you know, this isn't the real problem in this town. The real problem uh, are the big guys, once again. These are the people who are connected to the Republican Party and connected to the downtown banks where all this illegal money is being laundered. And, you know, he, he realizes that the establishment itself, the political and financial establishment in Philadelphia, have a major stake in the, uh, you know, the black market and booze. And so he begins going after the big guys, and he starts raiding their private parties where they have booze uh, <laughs> illegally. He's, he, 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 he sends his, sol- his soldiers, because they were kind of like his soldiers, he sends his cops you know, rushing into the Ritz-Carlton Hotel <laughs> and, and, and arrests these guys in their tuxedos and the women in their mink stoles. So he began to, you know, his days were numbered at that point. The big guys didn't want this kind of aggressive policing. And uh, Smelly Butler saw, actually, prohibition and the crackdown on illegal booze as a class war, he called it, because the little guys on their way home from work, the factory, you know, stopping to get an illegal beer, were being rounded up while the big guys, once again, went scot-free. So once he had offended these, uh, the wealthy and powerful in Philadelphia, his days were numbered, and they quickly forced him out of office. Butler was obviously not one to be politically correct and and certainly spoke his mind out. 1931, I note, the first senior military officer since the Civil War to be placed under arrest. Political intrigues again are involved with that. What what happened there? Well, it's interesting. Uh, People were beginning to accuse some people of of Butler of pacifism. And because he did, he was such a, uh, he had become such a vocal critic of war and, and of America's overseas involvements. And yet, in a speech that he gave in Philadelphia in that year, and that's near the end of Herbert Hoover's administration, he said no, he didn't believe in demilitarizing the country or demobilizing because he knew America needed a strong military. And he used as an example of the international threats that America faced, Mussolini in Italy, who was then rising to power. And despite uh, being, uh, of course, an open fascist uh, and a future ally of Hitler's, uh, Mussolini had a lot of friends in high places in this country, including Henry Luce, the, the media baron, the Rupert Murdoch of his day, who owned Time magazine and Life magazine. And he put Mussolini on, Mussolini on the cover of Time magazine, in fact, as the face of the future, because he thought what he was doing in Italy was so modern and bold. Um, in any case, uh, Butler in the speech says Mussolini's a mad dog, and he uses as an example a terrible incident that had been told to him by uh, an American newsman named Cornelius Vanderbilt, who was from, the, of course, the wealthy Vanderbilt family. And Vanderbilt had been uh, crisscrossing Europe and meeting with foreign 
heads of state, including Mussolini. And at one point, Mussolini invited Vanderbilt to join him on a cross-country tour of Italy uh, in his specially made uh, road car, and uh, in which he roared through the countryside at high speeds. Well, as Mussolini was driving through a little Italian village with Vanderbilt by his side, he hit, he struck a, a small child, a, a girl, ran her over, uh, and killed her. And uh, Vanderbilt screamed and turned around in the car to look back at what they'd done. And Mussolini put his hand on his knee and said, never look back in life, Mr. Vanderbilt. Smedley tells this story to a Philadelphia audience. It becomes an international incident. Uh, the Italian government and Mussolini are in an uproar, and they put pressure on our government, Herbert Hoover, and our Secretary of State, to reprimand uh, Butler. They go so far, and this is now a military hero, one of uh, you know the most decorated men of his day, winner of two Congressional Medals of Honor. But Hoover puts him under house arrest on the Marine base at Quantico, which he was in charge of. A, a terrible humiliation for Butler. And, uh, you know, his career is uh, facing ruin at that point. But a, uh, a man named Franklin Roosevelt, then governor of, of New York, stepped in, offered his help. Uh, the country rallies around Butler. Newsreels uh, in movie theaters reporting on this incident inevitably have audiences booing Hoover, President Hoover, and uh, cheering Butler. Finally, uh, Hoover had to back down and... Uh, and Butler resumed his career as a Marine. But uh, this was another turning point for Butler, and he you know, realizes at that point, and because of the way that Hoover has been treating veterans, which we can talk about, the Bonus Army March, that he's going to now go against his family um, uh, you know, record of many years and leave the Republican Party and become a Democrat and campaign for Franklin Roosevelt. Yeah, let's talk about that. In 1932, uh, there was an election year. I mean, it was between Governor Roosevelt and President Hoover. Um, in, in that year, a bonus army of World War I vets seeking compensation for wages they lost in the war descended on Washington and got dealt with very harshly by Hoover. And uh, troops led by Douglas MacArthur rousted them, which, which outraged Butler and I guess really put him firmly in the Roosevelt camp. That's right. Well, Butler had actually spoken to uh, the... Uh, the veterans who were camped out in Washington demanding their, their bonus. And uh, he rallied them and told them to remain peaceful, but that the country was behind them. And he said they have every right, as much right as uh, U.S. Steel and Standard Oil to lobby uh, the government. And, uh, but then, as you say, President Hoover decided to unleash the full might of uh, the Army on these uh, defenseless soldiers or veterans and their families. There were women and children in these camps as well. And MacArthur, strutting in his full uniform and jodhpurs, uh, led tanks and cavalry and soldiers with bayonets into these camps where they set fire to them and drove uh, the veterans and their families out. FDR, the next day, looking at the newspaper headlines, said, you know, General MacArthur's just caught her. Hoover, the election. Butler was not alone in defecting at that point, and uh, he did campaign aggressively for Franklin Roosevelt and uh, helped rally the veterans' vote for Roosevelt. Well, David, we've spent a lot of time on Butler's history, which is a most interesting one, and, and I think that all of this sets up your final chapter in the book, which tells the, the, the really, I think, earth-shaking part about 
Well, it's titled The Plot Against America. To talk about what unfolded starting in July of 33 as Butler got approached with some people making overtures that he found suspicious. Well, this is. It's a remarkable chapter in American history, and it's, to me it's just completely perplexing, again, why these kind of particularly dark and, and fascinating chapters get suppressed. It's in no standard history books. It, 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 you know, at the best, it amounts to a footnote in biographies of Franklin Roosevelt. But there was indeed a very aggressive secret plot against the Roosevelt administration very early on in his presidency, starting in 1933 after he was inaugurated. There were powerful forces on Wall Street centered around the Morgan interest, J.P. Morgan, which was the most powerful banking institution on Wall Street in those days. And these are people, very powerful bankers, industrialists, who decided that Roosevelt was going too far to the left, that he was uh, raiding the federal treasury uh, to put people back to work uh, and to uh, help people who were poor and, and in desperate need. And they felt that he was imperiling the value of the dollar by doing this and their own uh, fortunes. And so a number of these people, uh, in and around the Liberty League, by the way, which was a very powerful corporate lobbying group at the day of its day that, you know, the Tea Party pales in comparison, uh, or the Chamber of Commerce today. And uh, they actually began to conspire uh, to overthrow Roosevelt. They claimed they wanted to do it peacefully, but they were inspired by some of the fascist putches and uprisings uh, in, in Europe. Um, and they had in mind arming veterans and marching them on Washington in a show of force that would compel FDR to give up his office. They turned to, they considered MacArthur uh, for the role of leading this uh, fascist army, but they decided that uh, because of his role in the Bonus Army, the rank and file wouldn't follow him, which was probably correct. They knew how popular, though, Butler was with the rank and file soldiers, and so they turned to him, even though they knew he was uh, a little less predictable, and they began to talk to him about leading a, an army of armed 500,000 uh, veterans into Washington to force President Roosevelt to step down. Ro uh, Butler leads them on. He hears, he hears them out. He meets with their representatives of this plot several times. Uh, and finally, instead of going along with the plot, and by the way, he's promised great riches and power in the process, but Smedley Butler shows his true heroism, and this, is, I think, is the most heroic act of a very heroic life. And instead of going along with this plot and to end American democracy, he exposes the plot in very dramatic closed testimony before Congress and helps expose the plotters and ends the plot. Uh, FDR deals with them in his usual very discreet way. Frank uh, Douglas MacArthur, um, for instance, is not reappointed as Army Chief of Staff, the most powerful military position in the country, but he's in fact sent overseas like, a, like the disloyal Roman general in the old days, and uh, he never comes back to the United States. He's in Asia the rest of, uh, of Franklin Roosevelt's life. Um, and so he, Roosevelt dealt with it in his own discreet way, and that's partly why it didn't become public and, and a famous incident. But uh, Butler's heroism is unsung, but people should know about it because, you know, American democracy, like all democracies, are fragile things. And 
uh, our own democracy has suffered many blows in its 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 day, and this was probably one of the greatest threats because, of course, there was a strong fascist movement not just in Europe at the time, but within the United States as well that had strong corporate supporters, and uh, Franklin Roosevelt's presidency might have ended virtually as, as it was just beginning if it hadn't been for Butler. David, I have to note at this point, a lot of people listening are going to be going, I never heard of this plot, and they're going to go to Wikipedia and other sources on the web. And and I would note that when you do that, um, it's sort of very wishy-washy about the seriousness of, of this plot. What, what, do you, what do you say to those who would, would scoff at the seriousness of the conspiracy we're talking about? Well, just like their professional conspiracy theorists who tend to see conspiracy behind every bush, there's professional conspiracy deniers, too, who, <laughs> for either political reasons or whatever their own motives are, who deny, you know, everything, uh, every dark allegation about power. Um, and, you know, power does function sometimes in secret and in darkness, and not for the good of the people as a whole. That's just a fact of life. Europeans understand this. Americans tend to be more naive, I think, about their own government. Um, so I would say, look at the facts, and we marsh- I marshal those facts in the book. But if they really want to go to the source of it, there is a transcript of the congressional hearings that it can be found. Um, they're in the government archives, but they also have been reproduced online. I quote from them in the book. These were hearings were held uh, by John McCormick, who later became Speaker of the House, a very illustrious figure in American politics. In fact, John McCormick from Massachusetts, uh, who was in charge of these hearings, late in, late in his life, after he was retired from a very, uh, a very illustrious career as a congressman, uh, gave an interview to a Boston newspaper and said, there's an unsung Marine hero we should all know about, and that's, uh, that's Medley Darlington Butler. And because of him, we have democracy in this country today. So don't take my word for it. Look at the congressional testimony. Look at what John McCormick said and, uh, and, and other brave reporters of the day, because while the mainstream press tended to poo-poo the plot, like Time magazine, for obvious reasons, again, Henry Luce, um, there were some enterprising reporters on the left and also for Jewish uh, newspapers and publications who, who took the threat of fascism very seriously for, for obvious reasons. Well, we would note that Congress, as you say, did investigate the, the plot, but Butler himself kind of was demanding to call call the higher ups, call call the guys that uh, these these intermediaries that came to speak with me were representing, and I guess Congress uh, did step away from that. That's true. The uh, the hearing, the investigation pulled its punches. It stopped short of of calling for MacArthur's testimony or or Morgan's testimony or Dupont, the Dupont family or other villains in this whole episode. Uh, and, and he was outraged by that. Butler, in fact, just like a Capra movie, went on the air. There was a small radio station where he had a radio show near his hometown in, in Pennsylvania. And it was stepped by CBS nationwide. And he, um, he tried to alert the American people in saying, demand that Congress release the full testimony, demand that real culprits here be, be called to uh, account for what they did. Um, he was frustrated in that regard. Uh, the plot was never thoroughly and fully investigated, and the people were not public, uh, publicly punished the way that they should have been. As I said, FDR, I think because the country was so unstable at the time, 
in the depths of the Depression and, and so politically volatile, he decided not to turn this into a public spectacle, and he dealt with the culprits in his own private way. But, um, but Butler did want a public accounting. I think the democracy would have been even stronger if, if we had done it publicly like that. Well, David, final question. Uh, I've got your book here in front of me, and, and right next to it I do have War is a Racket by uh, General Smedley Butler. It's, it's quite a hard-hitting essay. It's not a long piece, but quite, quite hard-hitting in what, what, there's, what there is. Do you think he would have written this book in 1935 uh, if there hadn't been this plot? That perhaps was part of the motivation, realizing the powerful corporate interests that, uh, that threatened democracy in, uh, at times. But I think he, he was so emotional about this issue, and anyway, and about what young men who are asked to fight and die for a country are put through, that I think he would have done it anyway. That was from his heart. That was a cry from his heart, that book, War is a Racket. And by the way, I have to say, we need another Smedley Butler today, because war is still a racket in this country. And there's a few brave uh, military officers who have spoken out about the ways that our military has been stretched so thin and the kind of sacrifices that military families have had to make for wars that are inexplicable often. And certainly they're, they're no less inexplicable today than they were in Smedley Butler's day. Why are we fighting? That's what Butler asked, and that's what every American has to ask. Why are we fighting? Who profits from it? And who sacrifices? And what kind of a country do we want to live in that's permanently at war like this? These are questions that Butler asked, and the Americans don't ask enough, I think, anymore. Uh, And so I think Butler's story is inspirational in that way. Well, we talked about the top of this program. The war in Afghanistan is now nine years, eight months, 23 days as we go to air. And there's talk about extending it to the end of 2014. So I, I have to say that to the, the points you're bringing up certainly are, uh, are important. Thanks, Doug. And, uh, uh, you know, particularly for young people, too. And, again, that's bringing it full circle here. Why I particularly want people who are going to be joining the military or called on to fight for their country or to pay taxes and, and to to see their brothers and sisters fight and die. You have to, you know, think through the uh, consequences of that as an American citizen, and, and hopefully this book can, can help provoke that kind of discussion. We've been speaking with author David Talbot about his fascinating book, Devil Dog, the amazing true story of the man who saved America. David, thank you for speaking with us, and I hope we'll, uh, hope we'll bring you back sometime soon. I appreciate it, Doug. Thank you. We hope to speak again to David Talbot sometime in the near future about his newest book, The Devil's Chessboard, Alan Dulles, the CIA, and the Rise of America's Secret Government. After a short break, we're going to come back and uh, replay that chat we had with Alex Gibney, predating the 08 crash, but uh, talking about what Enron was up to back in 03 and 04, which was some pretty nasty stuff. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Don't go away. Don't go away.